what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook, and our first ever call-in via Skype, we have Mr. Chad Mackin. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, Chad. Thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, I'm glad to be here. So, we've had plenty of guests. They always manage to be in studio. It's a little bit far for you to travel this time, but maybe in a few weeks, you'll be able to be in studio with us. Chad, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What we wanted to talk about a little bit was obviously you're coming out to Australia with Jay doing the Dog Training Conversations tour of Australia. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to just sort of let people know who haven't already been listening to you guys, but do listen to us a little bit about you, how you got into dogs and the sort of stuff that you specialize in in dogs and that you'll be covering when you're here. All right. Well, you know, I've been doing this professionally. I just, March, I celebrated my 25th anniversary as a professional dog trainer. So it's been a quarter of a century now, which is... It's amazing that that just blows me away because it seems like I've only been doing it for a few years and I'm always still learning new stuff every day. So it's a it's an incredible journey. But, you know, I got started like back in 1993 and quite frankly, I got started professionally way, way too soon. I sort of got conned by a con man into believing that a four day seminar would be enough to prepare me to be a professional dog trainer. <laughs> and, uh, and I got into him for a lot of money. Like yeah, the right. first loan I ever got was to pay for that dog training course. And there's a problem that now I need to pay him back. So I had to find a way <laughs> to make the money back. Yeah. You're on the hook. So, you have to get out and start charging people. Yeah. And I always say that he only gave me two things of value. One was he gave me the confidence to go ahead and try and do this. And the other thing he gave me was he recommended that I get the Keeler Method of Dog Training book. And those two things together managed to muddle me through all of the stupid errors I made during the first couple of years of training. And at the end of the day, I, I had a feel for it. I had a, a little bit of a knack for it and it took off. And the rest is, you know, as they say, history. I've been ever since then, I've been trying to learn more and do it better. The problem that I ran into early on was because number one, I didn't have a mentor. Mm -hmm. You know, this guy was supposed to be there for you know, help if we needed help later on. And after a, a month after the workshop, he stopped answering his phone when I called. Yeah, I don't right. know if other people had the same experience, but and this was not, you know, pre-internet days. You know, you couldn't just go online and harass somebody on Facebook or whatever. Like mm. there was nothing. He just was a ghost in the wind and there was nothing I could do. Was it, um, a, was it a private seminar course sort of thing or were there lots of other people there? Yeah, there were a lot of people there. Well, I mean, there were probably about eight of us. Right. And I should have known that it was something was up when uh, one of the one of the students, uh, a young, not young to me, but young to me now, woman who was terrible. She was terrible at handling the dog. She was terrible at handling the leash. But she spent an afternoon in this guy's RV, and suddenly she's graduating with honors from this course. <laughs> right. So I, I should have known 
there was something wrong with it. But, you know, I was young and full of myself, you know, had more uh, had more confidence than was merited at at that point in my life. But that's what happens when you're young. You think you're bulletproof and invincible. So I was going to be great at this. And uh, so, yeah, it was a scam. Mm -hmm. The guy. I eventually tried to track the guy down, and I discovered a lot of crazy stuff. Like, um, he's got no internet presence at all, and even today, uh, but I did, yeah, even today. Well, so I finally found references to him in a, in an old magazine called Circus Gazette, which is actually, of all things, it's a trade publication for carnies, <laughs> carnival folks. Yeah, and, sounds like he was uh, running a circus by what you're saying. Yeah, and the thing is, is in this trade publication for carnies, remember this is, a, you know, carnies are known for being, you know, scam artists and scumbags and scoundrels, right? Yeah. And Not to offend our carny pub- listening listeners. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> yeah, we don't want to offend our, uh, our carny audience that we've gathered. <laughs> <laughs> We're well, very popular in the carny community. Well, you know, I don't know about Australian carnies, uh, so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Here in the state, it's kind of a almost its own, its own joke. But anyway, they're all brothers this, from another mother. Believe me. <laughs> in this circus gazette, they were warning other carnies to stay away from this dude. Oh wow! So he was even a scumbag for carny standards. Geez, that's um, really. He could probably parachute out of a snake's bum. Then <laughs> it's that low. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, he was like he was selling horses he didn't own. Oh yeah, and uh, oh, okay. all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so last I found, last reference I found, somebody had said that they had tracked him down and found out that he had been in a car accident and was in a persistent vegetative state somewhere in the state of Florida. Oh, well, so, someone caught know, up guess, with him. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, that's how I got into it. But, you know, and you, from the, was that sort of straight out of school? So, yeah, I was out of high school. I had a little bit of college under my belt, but I was going to be, I was going to make my fortune as a rock star. That was my plan. Mm-hmm. It's a good plan. This was... Yeah, it, it it's always the best plan. So this dog training was supposed to be a temporary gig until I until I got signed with a major label and became a rock star. Clearly that didn't happen, but uh, the dog training worked out pretty good. So, but but it has been from that time on. You know, I, this is one of the reasons why I get so sensitive when trainers start to belittle other trainers about you don't have an experience enough experience. You shouldn't be in this game. You know, you don't know enough. You're unqualified and you know, that's often true. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I wasn't qualified when I started and I managed to make good. Mm-hmm. You know, I managed to become something of, uh, you know, I've been doing this 25 years. It pays my bills. I, I don't, I don't have to work a second job. I don't go hungry. I have managed to make a career out of this and I started completely unqualified. So I have a bit of a theory on that, Chad, which is I don't have a problem with young trainers getting involved in the game. I don't. I, I think you have to, everyone has to start somewhere. What I do have a problem with is when they get involved in serious behavioral issues and aggression and try and handle it and manage it when they're creating more of a problem and mismanaging it more than anything. I think it's wise for anybody in any field to admit that you have limitations in your knowledge and seek guidance and mentorship from people that can actually... So I often explain to people and have done for a long time, you wouldn't go to a a general practitioner doctor with a serious eye problem and have them just pull something out of your eye. They'd send you to somebody. And I, I often use that example. And I believe that young trainers who are new to the game should do the same thing. They should know when to say when and pass it on to more experienced people. 
Man, I agree 100%, but I will say this, that I was never wise enough to do that in my early days. <laughs> and, and nor was um, I, mate, to be honest. I mean, we all get healthy egos when we get into this game because we become passionate and then an ego takes over. And then you kind of think, well, I am the guy. I am the guy that people should be asking questions. Why should they go to anyone else when they can come and speak to me about it? So I've been, myself, I've been in it pretty much the same period you have. I started around about 1990. And fortunately for me, I didn't have the same issue you had. I had a good mentor that started me off early in the game that stuck with me and is still a friend of mine to this very day and didn't rip me off and looked after me and showed me the ropes. But like most people, sometimes you want to go out and do things on your own and experiment. But yeah, I didn't have a a jerk off Carney trying to (laughs) rip me off. Well, and that's the other thing too is, is you got to remember I was a you know twenty something year old kid who had been told by a guy who was supposed to be an expert that I was qualified mm-hmm. that I could handle this stuff. You know, I mean it was it was brutal stuff. Like you know the the solution for any type of aggression that he showed us was just hang the damn dog. Mm. Yep, but that was what Take we knew back the, then. Yeah. And, you know, when that's, you know, they have that saying, you know, whenever, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And so I could, I believed I could handle any aggression case. As long as I had a leash and a slip collar, I could stop any dog from being aggressive, but just repeated hangings. By taking the air away I, from him. Yeah. And I mean, it was terrible stuff. And this is one of the reasons why I try so hard to, when I you know talk with younger trainers now, newer trainers, the, the problem still persists. There's still people who are selling short-term workshops and convincing people that they're now qualified to handle these, you know, complex, dangerous cases. Was there it's a, not gone away. Was there a specific incident for you when you were training dogs and just went, well, there's a hole in what I know here. Like, I haven't learned enough. I need to go out and – like, because obviously now, like, the list of people that you have studied with, under, and for – is huge, right? And you've been doing this, as you say, for a quarter century and at the top of your game now. So what, when was it that you just thought, you know what, there's more to there's more to this than what I know. I need to learn more. You know, there were several moments. I'll say that when I first started, you know, like I said, everything was based on the, the, the yank and crank stuff that this guy, this Carney taught me. And then on top of it, a very poor understanding of the Keeler book. Mm-hmm. And those two combined to make very rough, very non- sensitive non-dog centric mm-hmm. approach to dog training it was very much human centric like i want the dog to do this this is how i make him do it and what i discovered was probably about 30 percent of the dogs that i trained seemed to do well with that i mean they got it and they didn't seem at all put off by it about 10 percent seemed to actually enjoy it they seemed to like oh i got this and they got peppy and they had that kind of engagement that you see now on the training field from a lot of the top trainers but most of them just kind of gave me a fine, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. That's probably 70%. Mm. And those few those few that wanted to do it made me want to get that from more dogs. Yeah. Right? Those few who wanted to do it, I was like, I want that. So I began trying to find a ways to motivate them. Now, you got to understand that where I was, there was no networking. Like I was in Houston, Texas, and there was no – like I couldn't call another trainer and say, hey, I need help with this dog. They'd say, send them to me. Mm-hmm. Can I watch? No. Like they did not see this idea of colleagues didn't exist in my locale. So I didn't have, you know, and again, there was no internet. There was no YouTube. There was nobody to network with. So I had to figure stuff out on my own. I went to the library and read books and, you know, I was kind of poor at the time. So I couldn't even buy books. I had to go read them in the library or Mm -hmm. check them out and go through old AKC Gazette magazines and (laughs) old front and finish magazines and see what I could find to help with these problems. Yeah. Right. Uh, So, 
so there were several moments like that where I was trying to improve things and make things better. But when I joined the International Association of Canine Professionals was when things really started to change for me. Mm-hmm. And you, I met, you were in that right from the start, right? Like you were the first president, is that correct? No, no, no. I was not the first president. I was probably about, let's see, I think Rocky Boatman was the first president. Okay. And that, then Martin Dealey was president for a long time. Right. Okay. Sorry, I mixed something up. Yeah. Yeah. And then Mark Goldberg, I succeeded Mark Goldberg. Right, so okay. he was president for two years and I was president for two years. But no, uh, I came in as a, just as a starry eyed member who was just looking to, you know, make some stuff happen. I was looking to network and, and belong to an organization that, that was trying to improve the industry. And, you know, it wasn't long before I, I, I met a lot of people who would influence me throughout the years, Dick Russell, Tony and Chetta, uh, Mark Goldberg and Martin Dealey. I'd say that Dick Russell, Mark Goldberg, and Martin Dealey were the three most influential trainers in my journey from that time period. And Dick, because he taught me socialization, and Mark and Martin, because when I saw them train dogs, I saw something I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I didn't actually see them training the dogs. I just saw the dogs getting better. It was so smooth and so seamless and so beautiful. And I said, I've got to have that. I had no idea it was possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a saying that I use all the time. Normal is whatever you, you're used to. So if you're used to cranking on dogs to make them do things, that's what's, that's normal training. That's yeah. a good saying. And, I like that. I really like that. Yeah. And I saw them. I saw them do something that was not normal to me, but incredibly effective. And I'll tell you another moment that I love to tell this story because, I, and I think young trainers need to hear it, and I think tra- veteran trainers need to hear it too because it's it was a pivotal pivotal moment in my development. I spent a month at Martin's house, and I was trying to learn how to train gun dogs. And what I learned in that month, first off, was that I wasn't good enough to learn in a month. Like <laughs> I needed six six months to learn that skill set. But I was watching Martin work this young pup. On retrieves, just short distance stuff. This was, you know, maybe a five or six month old pup, not really doing, had not been doing anything really significant up to this point, just short distance stuff. But the dog was wearing an e collar and he tossed the bumper out and the dog went and got it. And Martin called the dog back to him and the dog looked at him, did a play bow, and then sprinted off across the yard. And I thought, well, Martin's going to hit the button, get the dog, come back to him. And he didn't. What he did was he laughed. Yeah, right. And it wasn't like a nervous, like, <laughs> It's okay, right? Like he seemed to be unaware I was watching. He laughed with a real, honest-to-goodness, joyful belly laugh. Mm-hmm. Like he was loving seeing this dog have a blast. And I was shocked. I, and I wasn't shocked that he allowed the dog to get away with disobedience because if we're being honest, I think all of us do that from time to time. We just don't like to admit it. Yeah, of course. A lot, we all go, well, you know what? I'm going to let that one go. But we tell each other, never let them get away with disobedience because, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, jerks that way. Mm-hmm. And, but Martin wasn't self-conscious about it at all. And he looked up at me when the dog finally came back to him and he was loving on the dog. He kind of looked at me. He saw me. I was probably standing there stupefied. And he looked at me and he goes, always give him the benefit of the doubt. And that just was a pivotal moment because you know what? I was there for another few weeks and that dog never blew off a recall again, yeah, not right. once. And Martin was sure, sure that if he had insisted, then he would have created a friction point that would have kept coming back to bite him in the ass every time. Mm-hmm. So he let the dog do it and it was the right decision. And that was an amazing moment for me like as a trainer because it was the first time someone gave me permission, somebody who was way better than me, somebody who was clearly out of my league gave me permission to allow the dog to make a mistake and not 
bring down the wrath of God, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Just laugh it off and get back to work. And that is a beautiful lesson. And I think trainers do it. We all do it. But I think we're ashamed or embarrassed or afraid to admit to it sometimes. And and I that was a huge thing for me. So that was a pivotal moment in, in my development. And there were several others. You know, I went to a Tony Anchetta workshop about the Keeler method. And he gave me a line in that workshop that is still very, very, very pertinent to everything I do today. And that is the slack leash is the dog's primary reinforcer. Mm -hmm. And that was like an aha moment for me, that slack is a reward. Slack is a reinforcer. And it comes before you say good dog. It comes before you touch the dog on the head. It comes before you offer the food. The moment the dog does the right thing, they've got to have that slack leash. And that, again, has, was, that was the first key to developing the leash system that I use now. The second key happened when I watched the uh, film Buck about the horse trainer, Buck Brannaman. Yep. Yeah, great show. Yeah, and that was about two years later that I saw that movie. And there's a scene in that movie. It's a very short scene. In my head, it seemed like it was a five-minute scene, but watching it, rewatching it, <laughs> it's about four seconds maybe. It's a very short scene. He's demonstrating the lead rope to a young, a young man. I'd probably say about you know 19 or 20 years old, I'm guessing. And he's showing him... How first he shows him that he pops that leash, that lead line a few times. If he moves his hand, the kid's going to flinch, mm-hmm. right? And brace for it. But he talks about doing it easy. But the thing is, is when that when he puts the pressure on that kid and that kid yields to it, he creates more slack than the kid expects. Now, in my head, at that moment, Buck said, "If he gives me a little, I'm going to give him a lot." But again, rewatching, that was never said. That was your That's interpretation. What I interpreted. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's another one that I say, if the dog gives me a little, I'm going to give him a lot. And it's what Tyler Muto calls active release, mm-hmm. right? You don't just let the dog passively create slack. You increase the slack and that there's a lot of, as I started getting into neuroscience, I started to learn that this is what they call prediction error. Like the dog expects a certain degree of slack to be created by movement. And when he gets more than that, his brain goes, wait a minute, that's not what I ex- expected. What did I learn from that? Because learning requires us to make an error in predictions. If we predict things correctly, there's nothing to learn. Mm-hmm. right? So the moment he makes an error in prediction, he goes, wait a minute, what was that all about? And then we have his attention because now he's trying to solve the puzzle. Nice. But I didn't, I didn't know all that then. When I saw Buck do that, I said that's the natural, exp- uh, the natural progression or the logical extension of Tony's line about the slack leash being the primary reinforcer. Yeah. That's where that story ends. Like that is, if you take that logic all the way to the end of the road, that's where you end up. And so I started trying to incorporate that into my training and it was hard. It didn't come easy. I would start, I'd take a dog out, a board and train dog, and I'd work that for about five minutes, get frustrated and go back to what I was doing before. You got to be in the right type of environment for that though, don't you? Wouldn't you agree? Because I think if you're in a complicated environment, the dog's not concentrating on that and not not coming up with that thought process at the time. You know, that's a good question. And I'll say that probably at that time that was absolutely true. And to some degree, it's always true, I think. But the further I get along with this, the easier it becomes for me to catch the dog's attention no matter what's going on. Mm-hmm. Not every case, but it's getting a lot. It's, it's a lot easier now, you know, so many years later. But yeah, absolutely. There's there's another aspect to it too, and that is just the aspect of this is not going to work. If the dog is trying to pull on the leash and you're capable of stopping them, stopping their forward motion 100% where they feel a tight leash and they never go. I always tell my clients, you know, you got to make this feeling of pressure on the dog's neck the brake. Right now, that's the gas pedal. 
Mm-hmm. They know the harder they pull, the faster they go. Yep. We, tur- we turn that into a break, and suddenly, suddenly uh, that's relevant to them. So there's two sides of it. It's not, it, you know, the one side is the break, the other side is the gas. So the gas comes from that active release. So in both cases, there's a prediction error, though. They're used to dragging their owners, they're used to dragging, you know, their, you know, the vet or the, the kennel tech who takes them in. Like they're used to just dragging everybody on the leash. That's what people do. They just go fine. And when the leash is handled in, in a way that stops them, you know, I don't like to slam the brakes on. I like to guide them to a stop. I don't feel like uh, that's old school. I, by old school, I don't mean bad, but that's what I was taught was it's got to be sudden and sharp. But what I found is that for most dogs, it doesn't have to be as long as it is firm. You mm-hmm. stop them, and then when they get tired of leaning into the leash, you reward them with slack. And, of course, now I'm using markers and food and toys and all, all sorts of other stuff, but that came a little bit later. Um so th- that's, an interesting, that- that's an interesting one to talk about and that you, for a long time, that slip leash was your primary tool, right? And that was what you were training, using to train almost every dog. Is that, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. I deliberately limited myself. I didn't want – I have a big thing, personal thing about uh, tool dependency. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I was very tool dependent on my you know, e-collars, prong collars, choke collars, all of this other stuff. And – I didn't want to be tool dependent. I wanted to be able to work a dog no matter what I had on them. And so I literally just stopped using all of those tools, except in extreme cases. I don't I, I would never refuse to use them. But I sort of intentionally tied my hands a little bit to make myself make it necessary for me to learn how to do it. I, I really believe that I'm calling it a simple leash now because I use flat collars and slip leads on still on most of my dogs. Mm-hmm. But I call it the simple leash. Because it's not got any fancy bells and whistles. There's the two most simple ways that anybody has ever controlled a dog. A leash with a flat collar or a slip leash. That's it. And I do my best to – I've done my best to make those processes really clear and really appropriate and effective. And and I do a pretty good job with it. But again, I've added food to that because I really believe that in the whole domestication process of dogs probably was centered around food. Yeah. Access to food. Well, that's, so, that's it, right? That's exactly what I tend to say to people is that the, the first ever dog training tool was probably a slip leash, was probably just a, a, a bit of rope someone threw around a dog's neck or a wolf's neck or whatever hybrid was existing at that time. And then he probably rewarded a little bit more with food. It was food that kept him there and the slip leash that provided him guidance on what to do. So it's the well, original even, thing. It's the, it's very primal. Yeah. I mean, even the dogs who who... You know, there's nobody knows for sure how dogs were domesticated, but the theory that, I, that seems to make most sense to me wasn't isn't the one where we went and stole wolf cubs and trained them, uh, and it wasn't the one where one dog out of the out of the pack would start to hang around humans because of accessible. I think it was probably feral packs of dogs or wolves began to follow humans because humans left behind refuse mm-hmm. because humans, you know, I think it was, I think, and then the bolder ones began to get, began to come closer and humans started to see that having these wolves hanging around was good for them. You know, they could, they could sound the alarm when there were, you know, nasties in the area or mm-hmm. something like that. And so they began to feed and keep these wolves and eventually it became, you know, domestication became a thing, but I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was something deliberate it wasn't on specific. either. The yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I and think they've pretty much reproduced that now with the Belyev's fox experiments, right? In in Russia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is super interesting. Yeah, domestication for anyone. changed the whole physical appearance of the fox. Yeah, so for anyone listening, you should definitely check that out. Are he, 
he started that at a time when genetic exper- experiments in Russia were illegal to do. So it was done at a, a fox fur farm under the guise of trying to create better fox fur. And in reality, it made terrible fox fur because the foxes they, now... They mutated into something they didn't expect. Yeah, I think they're about 70 generations in or something now. Mm. And they, they resemble almost nothing to like foxes. They look pretty much like little dogs. Like puppies. Yeah, yeah. and they still have a control group that are foxes... Pretty amazing. So, for anyone out there, check it out. I think it's Ivan Believ. I wouldn't even begin to know. Siberian fox experiment. Yeah, you can, there you you go, can find it. But uh, yeah, you're exactly right. They started to modify the look of the fox unexpectedly. Like this is just geneticism taking over. Mm. They started to round their eyes out, wag their tails. Some amazing things happened with it. So yeah, yeah it's really worthwhile having a look at. Yeah, you know, I want to thank you guys because you just cleared something up for me. Because the first time I ran across that experiment was, uh, I want to say it was in How to Be Your Dog's Best Friend by the monks of Newskeet, wrote it as what you described as, as that it was a furrier who was mm. trying to breed more docile foxes to raise for fur. And after a few generations, ruined the fur. Mm. And then since then, I'll, everywhere I've seen it, it's been a deliberate experiment into you know domestica- domestication. And I've always thought until just a few minutes ago that that was sort of a soft soaping of the history. But now what you're saying is that they did it at the fur farm under the, under the pretense of domestication in order to run the experiment without scrutiny, Yeah, that's right. So that makes, was my understanding of it. And I can't remember exactly where I read or heard this, but it was that was the cover. That it was at a time when genetic experiments were illegal to do. And so it was done at the fur farm as a cover for – oh we're not experimenting, we, we have an intent, and that is to make these foxes easier to handle. In that way, he got away with it. Although I think he didn't get away. I can't remember the exact... I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly how I read all this, but... Oh, something good for us to look up anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. probably have a, a research question. Yeah, we have a listener that can... Can uh, verify it. Yeah, and I'm 50-50 on my bullshit on the podcast as well. Because <laughs> I, I, I made something point. up. I made, I made up once, Chad, that crocodiles are immortal, and that turned out to be true. And then, and then I made up something about Dobermans last week, which I was I was promptly corrected on. But yeah, that's I'm fifty fifty. So we'll see about this fox thing. I might be totally wrong. I'm I'm going to get a new stat after today anyway. Well, it makes sense. It, you solved a mystery for me that's been bothering me for a while now. So I appreciate that. Oh, happy oh. to help. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I started. You know, I, I started doing the leash that way, and like I said, I would I would practice with the buck stuff. Uh, or my version of it until I got frustrated and go back to what I was doing. And then, you know, each day I got a little bit further along and eventually I was doing whole lessons that way without, without having to go back to the old stuff. So that mm-hmm. was extremely valuable. And, uh, and that sort of where I started to build, uh, a niche in, you know, leash work and a style of leash work that I had not seen before and an approach that no one else seemed to be doing. Now, Tyler Muto and I, shared a lot of information with each other during this time period. We were texting each other back and forth and shooting videos and sending them to each other. So we kind of collaborated on the process, uh, came to slightly different places, but still very much in the same vein. Mm-hmm. It's like a parallel um, development. Yeah, but, but we were contacting each other. We were, we were very excited. There was a, you know, it was, it was a, a really exciting time for both of us. So he ended up being pretty much caught up in the prong, not caught up. He uses prong collars a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the mechanics of the approach is very similar. Mm-hmm. You two so have a really, very um, – both you and Tyler seem to have quite a, an academic approach to your training as well. Yeah, that came a little bit later for me, I think. I've always been a bit philosophical in nature. So I think like when I first read 
the How to Be Your Dog's Best Friend by the Monks of Nooski, that really resonated with me because they were philosophical people, you know, theological but philosophical, right? Mm. And uh, that that resonated with me. And that's what I liked about Keeler too, was Keeler had a, a very well-developed philosophy of dogs, which I could sink my teeth into. I've never been very satisfied with how-tos that don't give me the why as well. Yep. And that's always how I've been. But you know, over the years, I've grown to disagree with the Keeler philosophy. The hows, a lot of the hows are still very useful and very effective, but the Keeler method uh, has one huge drawback, in my opinion, and that is it begins with an adversarial mindset that the dog is just trying to get away with disobedience, and mm-hmm. it's our job to not allow them to. But it was effective and, at the time. I mean, the Keeler method was ahead of its time at the time, and now it's not because we've evolved in our thinking and our theory in, in how dogs learn and function in modern day. Yes, exactly. I mean, I have. I, I still believe every professional trainer should understand the workings of the Keeler method, at least up through novice obedience. Mm. Um, because for a couple of reasons. Number one, Bill Keeler created a, a very, very structured, progressive system. An idea of teach the dog what you want first and then layer in corrections to fix it when the dog doesn't do it. That was very important. To start with the foundation of pay attention to me is, you know, with the long line that they do, the idea that the dog should always be aware of what's going on with you, should be tied to you mentally, is so profound and so important and it's so missing from so much of what people do in both sides of the both sides of the of the, you know, punishment aisle, positive trainers or balanced trainers, a lot of them are even when I started doing my version of Keeler, I skipped the long line work because it was so damn boring to me. Mm. <laughs> like I'm just going to make him do it, right? Yeah. And and I think that's an error. It's an error that if you have true engagement from the dog, if you have the dog paying attention, mentally connected to you, you don't have recall issues. You have a recall issue when the dog chooses to check out with you. Mm-hmm. You have obedience issues when the dog chooses to check out with you. When the dog is paying attention, you got everything, right? You know, if the dog doesn't lose focus on you because there's a rabbit, he doesn't run after the rabbit. Yeah. And I used to say, when your dog starts moving away from you with intent and purpose, without permission, that's you're already deep into a training failure at that moment. Mm-hmm. And anything you do at that point in time is trying to recover from that. And that's that's sort of where Keeler comes from, is, is keep one ear open for commands. You can have some freedom. You can have some relaxation. You can have some liberty. But don't forget that we're doing this together. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, missing from a lot of – it's one of the things that you know Jay and I both are really big on is, is having a dog that can be trusted at liberty. And so, yeah, absolutely, I believe every trainer should should know how to do Keeler by the book, so to speak. But I also don't think they should stop there. I think that having that in your back pocket will really help you with a lot of stuff. I'm not anti-Keeler at all. But like you said, I've, I can't train that way anymore. I literally can't. Like, it, it makes me feel bad, you know. <laughs> so, well, Jay, uh, Chad, have you seen the, the video Jesus Christ in Richmond Park with a dog called Fenton? I have not. You need to do yourself a favor when you finish this. You <laughs> immediately. Need to, you, immediately. Immediately. Like you need to get okay. on YouTube and look up Jesus Christ in Richmond Park. And okay. it completely summarizes what you were just talking about with a dog checks out on you when it's just not interested in anything you've got. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I know the video you're talking about. I think I've seen that. He's the chasing the dog the- through a field and it's just chasing some deer. And he, yell- like he yells for the dog's name like nine or ten times. Fenton! Yeah. Fenton! And calls for <laughs> yes. Jesus three times. Now, the dog didn't respond and Jesus didn't show up, so he was deep in shit <laughs> from the very get-go. 
So yeah, that's an important thing. I think that that's like, and that's what we get a lot of buzzwords. Like training goes through buzzwords right now. Engagement is a big buzzword. Yeah. And you know, Tony will tell you there's a difference between attention and attentiveness. Like you want the dog to be paying attention all the time, but this engagement that people want to talk about, that's attentiveness, mm-hmm. right? That, that super hyper focus. And we need both. We need both. We can use both. Like I, I've recently got into trying to get that like super hyper focus, watch me command thing because it's fun and it's, it's, and it's valuable in certain circumstances, but it's not the, it shouldn't, I don't believe it should be the bedrock of training. Like I said, people call us up and people call us up because their dog is having problems living with them, not attention issues. Like, yes, if your dog is staring at you, lock eye contact. Yeah. He's not charging at the other dog across the field. He's not, you know, biting the baby in the head. He's not, you know, uh, being a jerk or tearing your stuff up or whatever problem you're having with him. But that's also not the life you want for him. Yeah. In my opinion, I don't want a dog to just stare at me all the time. Like I tell my clients to look for that. They should see a dog who, how, who behaves like a first date should behave. Right. And if you had your first, if you were on a first date with somebody and they just stared at you the whole time obsessively, they probably wouldn't get a second date, <laughs> you know? Well, that, that depends but, what they're staring at. <laughs> but at the same time, if they're staring at their phone the whole time, they wouldn't get a second yeah, date. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, makes sense. Not. Yep. So you want this relatable amount of attention was socially appropriate. And if you can keep that, then that's where, you, that's where I like to start. Mm-hmm. And then, that- yes, we can say, okay, in this moment, I want you to stare at me. But in this moment, I want you to explore. I want you to sniff, like, when did we stop letting dogs sniff on walks? Yeah. I think exactly what you're saying is a little bit of a bleed over from high level sports trainers into the pet dog world in that I know that I am sometimes guilty of this and tell people at the same and I know it's not the best fix is that when they say, oh, I've got a dog aggressive dog and I don't intend to ever let him off leash, but other dogs pass and I need to be able to deal with that. Usually I, because the easiest thing in my brain is I say, well, we teach that dog a focus on you command and we teach it so that it, he can maintain that for two minutes straight under a high level of distraction and that level of distraction means other dogs in the area and now you don't have a problem. But that's just management mm-hmm. and I, I right. see a lot of people that preach that and I'm very guilty of it myself but we're never really actually addressing the cause of the problem and we're not really helping the dog become a better, more functional version of himself that can live with the people. All we're able, enabling them to do is walk safely so probably an approach to both is perhaps much better yeah sorry chad i can go ahead i can tell you from experience like you were hitting the nail on the head before about attention versus being attentive and i think the problem is that in a lot of general day-to-day lives of people just domestic pet owners one of the huge issues they have is they demand this degree of attention and focus from their dog and yet have none themselves or very little yeah. themselves. And that's a big part of the problem is that people's attention to their dog is so fleeting. They'll spend very, very small amount of time doing anything productive and active with their dog and expect an enormous amount back from the dog, which is a lose-lose situation for both the owner and the dog. A hundred percent agree. That's, again, it's another, it's another allegory, or not allegory, uh, analogy I use with my clients all the time is like, if you're out to dinner with somebody and they look at their phone and go, I'm so sorry, I've got to take this. It's an emergency. I'll be right back or you know, just whatever. And they, they take a phone call there at the table with you. You are not expected by any social convention to stare at them the whole time they're on their phone. In fact, 
you're expected <laughs> to do something different. It's rude to not check out when they check out. Yeah, right? good, good point. And that's the social contract. Like we are, as long as we're in this together, then I have a right to expect your attention. You have a right to expect my attention. But as soon as that social contract is broken, now we are both free to do our own things. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem I see. I tell my clients to stop walking their dog. I tell them, I don't want you to ever walk your dog again. I don't want you to take your dog for a walk ever again. I want you to take, to take a walk with your dog. Mm. Walking a dog is something we do to them. Taking them for a walk is something we do for them. Mm-hmm. I want them to do something with the dog. And that means their phone's in their pocket, their hands are on the leash, if they're still using leashes, and they're interacting with their dog. Mm-hmm. That they're, they're not checked out because as soon as you check out, uh, don't get me wrong, I also tell them at some point in time, you're going to have to check out and your dog still has to stay focused, at least reasonably. Mm-hmm. right? If you have to take a phone call, your dog shouldn't think it's okay to just drag you down the street as soon as you answer your phone. But the first thing is, is when we're teaching that, let's start with that. Let's start with teaching the dog that we will pay attention to them and they will pay attention to us as opposed to you have to pay attention to me. It doesn't matter whether I'm paying attention to you. That's a much harder lesson to teach and we can teach that. But later on, let's first get in the habit of us paying attention and working together. Mm. So that's a big, big thing for me. I, as a matter of fact, I was almost shot a video about that today because I, was, I had this dog out and first lesson and I'm working with the dog and she's doing really good. And then something distracted me. I don't want my guy text message or something like that. And I picked up my phone to look at it. And as soon as I had the phone in my hand, the dog was pulling me and I'm actually not noticing it right away. Cause this is one of the things that we're really bad about. We get so used to dogs pulling on the leash mm. that we can tune it out. We can literally just let you see people all the time. They're standing there having a conversation. Their arm is getting dragged all over in God's creation. And they're not even noticing it cause they're so used to that. Well, I was doing the same thing today. And I went, oh, I need to shoot a video of this. The problem is I shoot, all, I shoot all the videos on my phone. I couldn't use my phone to demonstrate. But it's good, but it's good to let people know that even as a dog trainer, even as a professional, that you still make mistakes with your dog. I think that a big part of the problem is people convey this image of being professional and perfect all the time. But perfect is an illusion for the insane. I think people need to, well, you look at the Japanese culture for argument's sake. I think I've talked about this before on, on an episode where... The Japanese, as a culture, used to pursue everything being perfect. And it actually they actually found that it was uh, deharmonizing the actual race of people themselves. They, they weren't able to live up to the standard. And when you have that expectation of your dog or your, your family or whatever it is, you find that same discontent attitude in, in your life. It's that you can't meet that standard. So I believe that the standard of trying to be excellent is achievable, but perfection is just a ruse. It's just something that you can't do. So having trying to be perfect is just false advertising in so many ways. One of the things I, I like is one of my analogies. I would teach everything with analogies if you haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> uh, Which is good. Oh, yeah. That's, it's a great teaching tool. But I talk about the North Star. And I would say when sailors would point their boat towards the North Star, not a one of them ever expected to reach it. Oh, that's right? a good point. Yeah. But they knew if they kept their bow pointed that way, they'd get where they were trying to go. Mm-hmm. And that's what perfection is for me is that North Star. I don't have no hope of ever being perfect. Mm. But if I keep my eyes on the perfect training session or the perfect dog or the perfect moment, then I will know when, I'm, when I've gone off course. I'll know when I'm moving away from that. And that helps me make, adjust my course. And that's, the, that's what perfection should serve us as is that sort of this is the beacon that we're – steering towards yeah because when you start talking about a journey of miles and miles being off by half a degree is going to make a huge difference yeah you know so 
to me, that's a very, that's a very valid, very important thing. And that's how I, that's how I see perfection in myself. And, you know, it's always about improving. Like that's at the end of the day, we want to be better than we were yesterday. Mm. And that perfection with any dog is unattainable. Like I know I've heard you say it before, and I agree 100% that there's no such thing as a, a finished dog. They're a constant work in progress. There's never going to be, like, I've attained it. This is all I ever need from this dog, and now we're finished training. We never do it again. It's a constant cycle, and, and you create a strength in one part of the dog, and that creates a weakness in another. And so you, it's an ebb and flow. Okay, I'll fix this, go back to this. And it's a constant, I was going to say struggle, but that's the enjoyment of it, right? That's, that's part of the process, and that's, that's a lot of the fun in training a dog at all. Right. I, I mean, at the end of the day, as there's, there's two sides to this because as professionals, we're hired to do a job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, George Cockrell, who's a third generation dog trainer here in the States, he's got a line that I just love. It's the best description of professional dog training. And he says, people get a dog because they want a friend. Yeah. They call us because they don't want their friend to be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. That's good. And I'll, I'll amend that to say, I think they call us because their friend is already an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And they want us to help the dog stop being an asshole. And that's that's the first that's our first goal. Like like that's our first goal is is to get the dog to stop being an asshole. And for a lot of people, that's all they care about. And that's mm-hmm. what we talk about, the livable dog. Mm-hmm. They want a dog they can live with. Like we as dog trainers, we can get really caught up in the minutiae. You know, we can start debating quadrants and you know, is this differential reinforcement of an alternate behavior or an other behavior or incompatible behavior and we can, you know, parse the words and get all deep into the philosophy and the science. And I'm a geek. I love that stuff. I will geek out on that shit all day long. Mm. But the average dog owner just wants a dog that they can come home to and enjoy. Yeah. And, and they won't understand it, that theory as well. It it only adds to confuse them even more. They'll mm-hmm. nod their head in agreement with you. Like they'll look at you and give you acknowledgement, but it's generally an empty acknowledgement. They're looking at you going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And really what they need is it broken down into something understandable by them, something meaningful. Something practical. Something practical. Right. And that's where I come back to that thing that I always say is that the dog isn't trained until it can be trusted at liberty. That's the ultimate goal. Like, I have never titled a dog in my life. I might one day. I'm thinking about it because I'm enjoying, starting to enjoy the, the challenge to achieve precision and that functionality. But I rejected that for many, many years. I tell you, I read, I read the rules for the AKC novice obedience title. And they said something in it that really just turned me off way back in, early in my career. Because I thought I might title dogs back then. And they said that the dog can pull, something to the effect that the dog can pull on the leash between exercises. Like if the dog breaks a heel between exercises, there's no points off for that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's just stupid. Like, what are you testing then? Like literally, like if the dog, if you're testing obedience, shouldn't the dog be obedient from the time it enters the ring to the time it leaves the ring? Why wouldn't you take points off for it? And that was the first inkling I had that there was something shady in the way they were judging these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that stuck with me. But, you know, now I'm at a point where, again, I'm starting to enjoy, I'm starting to enjoy the precision. I mean, that was a, that was another change that happened fairly recently. I would argue against that for many, many years. And I'd still agree the average dog owner does not need a dog to do an IPO-style heel. No. They like, won't maintain it. There's no way they're going to do know, it. The average dog owner, you could, you could sell them a dog that has the perfect heel, and six weeks later, it's going to be dragging them down the street. Right. Because they're not interested in it. Yeah. Like, and and you know maintaining the not- reinforcement and just keeping it – because no <laughs> dog wants to do that. There's a good old joke that says – 
how does an idiot make a million dollars? Give them a billion dollars and wait. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. I like that one. No, but, but it's, it's absolutely true. Like I don't like, I make my living off of people who need help with their dogs. Mm -hmm. Bottom line. Mm. And no one has ever called me up. And I don't, I don't think it happens very often in the entire history of professional dog training. Now, maybe if you're Bart Ballone or Michael Ellis, you get a lot of phone calls from people saying, I need to clean up my dog's sit. It's too slow. It's too it's sloppy. It's in the wrong, you know, it's not straight enough or whatever. But for the most of us, people don't call us with those questions. They call us, my dog's jumping on my kid. My dog's, you know, biting the mailman. My dog is, you know, eating my blinds, crapping on the rug, whatever. It's never my dog's obedience isn't sharp enough. Mm. And yet we tend to make, a lot of us tend to make obedience the thing to solve those problems. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I absolutely, absolutely 100% believe in the effectiveness of using obedience to build a dog's character, so to speak, teach them impulse control, create a clear level of communication so they know what we want and we know what they want and we can have a conversation and we're not like talking past each other, so to speak. I absolutely believe in all of those aspects of obedience. But at the end of the day, my clients don't care if their dog sits in the first time they say sit. Mm. They don't care at all. Mm. They don't care if they have to repeat a stay command. They don't care at all. What they want to do is they want to enjoy their dog. They want to come home and not have to be worried about what the dog tore up today. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to have guests over without having to put a muzzle on their damn dog. They don't care about that stuff. And the only way I can make them care about it is to show them how it helps them solve the problem that they called me to solve. And I think trainers miss that. They, they get caught up in this obedience. And on the other side of it, there's trainers who say obedience isn't helpful at all. And those people are wrong too. Yeah. Like, of course it's helpful. Of course it's helpful. It's not the be all end all. It's not everything. But yeah, if you have a dog, you, you cannot do – a dog cannot do obedience without paying attention and without having impulse control. Yeah. Right? You can't do it. Yeah. yeah. So we need, we need both – we get both of those things. And guess what? Getting too excited – too overcharged, that affects impulse control. So dogs learn to self-regulate their excitement level in order to achieve more impulse control. Mm-hmm. No, I agree 100%. So, so it all ties together. But at the end of the day, the problem most dog owners are facing, in my opinion, is over arousal. Definitely. Right? Definitely. Which is what we create when we do IPO-style training. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You wait till you get here and see my dog in that, in that space. Like he, he's 100 miles an hour all the time. And it, it's taken a lot of work to make him a livable dog in the house, you know, because because I've made him crazy in so many other areas, to then keep him to a point where he can relax is is very, very tricky beyond what you would expect the average pet owner to be able to do, to be able to have really flashy obedience, but also tell him to go on the couch and chill out. Is He's not that type of dog. Well, I'm, yeah, but I'm struggling to do that. You know what I mean? You wouldn't, you wouldn't imagine being able to just go like first time dog owner, good luck. Mm. No, it's hard, especially when you got dogs who are bred for, you know, insanity, so to speak. Mm. You know, um, interesting, I was just thinking about, do you know a guy called Gary Cassera? Have you met Gary? Yeah, I'm familiar with, I'm familiar with Gary. He, uh, he used to work with Ellis, right? Yeah, that's right. So he was there when I was at Michael's school and Gary put a, a Facebook video up probably a year or so ago, but it was one of the best, it was very influential in my training of pet dogs where Gary was talking about whether it's worth teaching a dog to sit or not. And he's talking about opening his gate and he says, now everybody wants their dog to sit here at the gate, but 
He says, the reality, you don't give a fuck whether your dog sits or not. You just don't want your dog to get hit by a car when you open the gate and you don't want him to run out. So why bother teaching him to sit when you can just teach him don't run out the gate? And in the long run, that's going to be a much more effective thing for that dog to learn because when the gate's open, he knows he's not allowed to run out of it rather than that he has to sit there to wait to get out of it. And I remember thinking at the time, mm, that is fucking good. <laughs> like mm. it's very simple, but it's it's real world stuff and it's real life stuff. And from my mm. brain, I think, you know, I teach people sit while you open the gate or whatever. And he's like, no, 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 no. The sit is not important in any way, shape or form. The waiting for the gate to be opened and given permission to go through it is what's important. And the sit was your function to do that. And there's a much better way to do it. So, uh, this, is, this is very interesting because I'll tell you about the first time so I saw a trainer teach a leave it command. I had never taught a leave it command and I had no interest in leave it. And the reason why was if the dog is healing, he's not picking shit up off of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm. And so I'm watching this. I was hired for the dog training company and this, uh, there was a, a lady who was teaching there who was you know, my boss who would always tell me, I've been training dogs for 20 years. And my response to that was in my head, but you haven't learned anything in 19. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I never said that out loud. She was really, uh, yeah, I don't want to talk to, I'll say nothing more about that. Um, but, we get uh, it. We get it. <laughs> but the one thing is she was doing leave it. She'd be healing the dog. The dog would try and pick something off the ground. She'd pop the leash and say leave it. Or she'd start throwing treats on the ground saying leave it. And, and I thought, my first thought was why are you doing that? Just correct the dog for not healing. But then as I watched her work, I began to realize that leave it had value because it worked when the dog wasn't healing. So she was using the heal command to create a situation where the dog already knew he was breaking the rule mm -hmm. to teach to leave it, which I thought was pretty pretty wise. I teach leave it completely differently now, but at the time I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. So I started adding leave it to my to my repertoire. And the reason I tie that in is is this is a situation where I agree 100 percent with what you know with what you said, Gary said. I I I've always thought it was weird that we have to teach a dog to sit to teach them not to run through doors, mm. and even going through doors like that they have to wait for us to go through first. It's another idea that I think is you know somewhat. I think it sounded good at the time, whoever came up with that theory, and then they tied it all into this is a dominant behavior and you can't have your dog doing it. And from what you've been talking about, what Pat's been mentioning about Gary before, I think in the early days of training, it was just a lot of don't think about it, just do it. Monkey see, monkey mm -hmm. do. So you don't need to think about training because dogs are effectively a beast of burden. They're just supposed to do as they're told. And conventionally, we teach our dogs to sit, stand, drop, heal, and recall. They're the conventional obedience commands. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's important to teach and empower dog owners to have handbrakes for their dogs, control mechanisms that they can function their dogs. But you're right. I mean, why does a dog have to sit or have to drop and wait when it can stand still and wait? It can just well, it can would... know a threshold and know not to pass through it. Well, there and here's where I will disagree with Gary just a little bit, or maybe not with him. He might agree 100% if he heard me say this. But here is the value of teaching the sit and the down or, or drop, as you call it, is uh, each of those commands, each of those positions uh, vary in stability from the stand. And this is like – so like for example, when I teach a dog to sit, stay, I don't care if they lie down because they're going to a more stable position. What I mean by more stable is it requires more metabolic effort for them to move – from the down than from the sit. It requires more metabolic effort for them to move from the sit than from the stand. So one of the values of teaching 
positional commands like that is that it requires the dog to – it makes it easier for the dog to succeed. Mm. It makes it harder for them for, to forget. They have to make an effort to stand up. Mm-hmm. They have to make an effort to stand up from a down. So if they go to a more stable position from a down, as Dick Russell put it, that's the time that you get on your knees and thank whatever gods you believe in because your dog's telling you he's not planning on going anywhere for a while. Mm. Right? But the only reason to stand up from a sit-stay is they're thinking about going somewhere. Mm-hmm. The it's only the reason to sit up from a down – Hmm? The first step in breaking. Yes, exactly. So there's a value in using sit at those thresholds, not because the dog needs to learn to sit, but at the early stages, that's going to help them succeed. So I'll start with a sit and eventually let them choose their position as long as they know not to go through the door. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there is value in it. And this is what I'm talking about is, is I think people miss miss the value of commands from a functional point of view. And this, I think, has to go along with uh, the change in training methodologies, to be honest with you, when we got so caught up in motivation, which I'm totally in love with motivational methods right now. I'm totally in love with getting the dog's drives engaged and, and using food and, and luring and, you know, getting, you know, reward events and all of this stuff. I'm totally into that. But what has been missed, I think, in that transition is that that killer idea that it's a cohesive package, that everything is tied together and every command should teach the dog something about how to live with people. Mm-hmm as opposed to just repeat a behavior over and over again. Mm. And so, like, if you think about it, again, heal. The dog can't heal without paying attention. For the dog to heal, he must be watching you. Yeah. Or at least, I say that. I, I do one, one of the early dogs I trained, my mom's German Shepherd, I trained him up using Keeler, and that dog would heal as, as sharp, the sharpest dog I'd trained to that point would heal. Probably I mean, nothing compared to today's modern IPO guys, but it was it was sharp. It was pretty precise. Like I could not turn fast enough on a four foot leash to surprise him with the with the tight leash. Mm-hmm. And yet he never looked at me. He never looked at me when I told him to heal. Now I realize that's because he was giving me a little bit of a fuck you for being such a <laughs> hard ass training him. Like fine, I'll do it, but I'm not gonna like it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But but at the time. I was proud of that. Like he's so smart, he doesn't have to look at me to heal. I bragged about that for years until I, you know, grew up a little bit. But yeah, I mean, the whole point that I'm getting at is for the dog's gotta pay attention. Yeah. To heal correctly. And and so there's something in there that you're telling the dog, it's your job to pay attention to me. Okay, I got it. You know, sit if you teach sit with pressure, you're teaching the dog to yield to pressure, which is a very important skill for a dog to have. So I always even if I lure a dog into sit ninety nine times on that hundredth time, I'll still mold them because I want the dog to yield to pressure when I touch him. Mm-hmm. I want the dog to understand that. Same thing with down. I, I hate, I hate forcing a dog into a down. It's one of my most least, the least favorite things that we do as dog trainers. And so I will lure them, you know, two hundred times out, you know. But on that two hundred first time, I'm going to guide them with pressure. I want my dogs. I want every dog I train to know to yield to pressure. Yeah, well, and, and and not and, just yield. Like that's a big part of the knee popo system as well, and that. Every dog has to understand that pressure into behaviors. Pressure doesn't just mean stop doing something. It does. It means do something. And must I think, do. Yeah, must do. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think a lot of people leave that out of their training now, where what Bart calls the popo nay. So people who are just positive, positive, positive training. And then when the dog doesn't do, they apply the correction and the dog doesn't understand pressure to mean do something. They mm-hmm. understand the pressure to mean stop doing something. And so in that learning process, when it's going well and when the dog is still still in what you would call the learning phase, but the learning is going well and the dog's predictably doing the behavior, you have to apply some pressure so that 
at a day when you do apply more pressure later, he understands how to turn that pressure off and knows pressure means do, not don't do. Yeah, that's I love that. Like I, yeah, I do that. I didn't always doing that, but I do that absolutely. <laughs> well, you, and you can tell, you can see in everybody when they're doing it. The people who are locked into what we call the popo nay, if they ask their dog to do something and they apply correction, it doesn't. The dog won't do it. If your dog, if you ask your dog to do something, it doesn't do it for whatever reason, and you apply a correction, and then it does do it, then your dog understands Nipopo. He understands pressure means do the thing, get into the behavior rather than shut down. Because you see it, I mean, I talk about it all the time. The average person, like the average person that gets into training dogs, the first thing they do is that they, they've got, say, a problem dog or a dog that pulls on the leash or whatever, and they, they fix that. And what they think they've done is taught their dog to heal, but they've just taught their dog to get into the safety of the safe space away from pulling and away from the thing that's making them reactive. And they, in their mind, they've stopped doing one thing. They haven't begun doing another. Mm. And then that same person teaches a dog sit down, stand, and they tell their dog to stand from the sit and the dog doesn't do it. So they apply what they think is a correction and the dog flips around into what looks like a heel because he thinks that's how I turn off any pressure. And that's a classic mm -hmm. popo nay that the dog doesn't understand. Whereas where there's pressure in the learning, then that's more knee popo. Yeah. I, I don't quite do it that way. Like I, I will lure a dog as much as I can. Mm -hmm. So there, I mean, there, God, there's so much like it's, it gets hard to really put it all together. Like I'm thinking about like when I teach leash, that's one of the things I'm doing right now. I'm calling it, uh, this is a kind of an interesting story. You know, I came up with what I'm calling pressure release 2.0, which is the next level of my teaching the leash pressure system. And I was really happy. I'm still really happy with it. It's really effective. It's really beautiful. And I, I'm fortunate to have a lot of clients who are following the right trainers on YouTube mm -hmm. and Facebook. And so I got this guy in here and I'm showing him how to teach this dog the leash pressure, the, the new way I'm doing what I'm going to show you guys when I get there. And, and this guy goes, Oh wow, that's kind of cool. I said, what really? Why? He goes, he goes, Larry Crone had a video. He was doing the exact same thing. <laughs> I, I think that's the, the secret really in being a successful professional trainer is that if you have a system or a methodology that you're using, as long as it converts to a practical outcome for your client, that they understand it and it works for them and the communication between them and the dog is what I would call highly effective, then you're doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I took this, I took a video, I did the same thing in a video I sent it to Larry Crone. I said, hey, are you doing this? Because you don't know if your client's telling you the truth. Yeah, not yeah, yeah. Telling you the truth. You don't know if they're missing something. And Larry goes, oh, Larry goes, yeah, I've been doing that for years. So that's my funny story is because I invent, <laughs> I keep inventing things other people have invented, which means I'm on the right track, right? <laughs> like I don't have any shame about it. That's a good sign, but it's, it's really good stuff. Like, but that is a, that would be an example of what you're talking about where I, I actually teach the pressure into the behavior and into the food yeah. first. Yep. And, but when I teach heel, for example, there's no pressure. It's all lore. Yeah. Right? It's all lore. And, and then once the dog is starting to understand it, then I layer pressure in to yeah, guide perfect. them. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly so, it. So it does come in, but it's not the first part of it. Mm. The same thing with sit. I start with luring the dog into sit. Unless they refuse, then I'll, then I'll mold them and down. All the stuff, except for the leash pressure, because that is about pressure itself. Mm -hmm. I teach luring first if I can help it, and then add pressure as the dog uh, becomes more proficient. But I think you're right. If you wait too long, at this good point, if you wait too long to add pressure, you create confusion and resentment in the dog. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what the hell is this? It has a like, different meaning for sure. Yeah. Um, it becomes a threat. But if it's been part of it, and that's, 
that's one of the things that's so nice about the Keeler system. As much as I, I disagree with uh, with the philosophy that it was of of adversarialism that it started with, you know, if you do it according to Tony's program, you know, before you ever offer a leash correction for not sitting, you have physically put the dog in the position a hundred times. Mm. Yeah, and 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 each time has had that neck pressure that you're going to use as a correction later on. So he knows that neck pressure means to sit. Yeah, to do. Yeah. He yeah. knows how to turn that pressure off. And that's an important. Now, the difference between that and what I understand Nipopo to be, and I've not been to any of Bart's workshops. I went to his conference presentation a few years ago. But the difference being is that I don't think Bart is doing escape training. And and I think and I think Keeler, at least in that yeah, case, yeah. that sense, is definitely escape slash avoidance. Yeah, there's, um, a, there's a fair amount more nuance to it. Nuance, I use that word yeah. again. Well, I got, I got in trouble on the last podcast for overusing the word nuance, and then it, <laughs> but it turned out I was using it correctly. <laughs> well, <laughs> there wasn't a more nuanced version of nuance for you to use. Exactly. That's, that, that's, you just use it twice in a sentence. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> so your leash work is something that that's actually why I contacted you right in the start when I um, started listening to your podcast and was like, Hey, this is, I, I want to learn more about this and then convinced you to come out here and then later convinced you to bring Jay with you. Yeah. So the workshop here in Australia, we're doing Sydney, then Brisbane, then Melbourne. What's it going to look like for everyone that's wondering? Well, you know, Jay and I had to have a talk about this because, you know, Jay and I, we train very differently, but we achieve a lot of the same results and goals. Mm -hmm. And so putting us together on a podcast is easy because we, we share a lot of ideology. But in terms of actual practical approaches to dogs, we're very different. And so it was, it was we had to kind of sit down and go, what are we going to do? Like, because we certainly don't want to get in a point where we look like we're competing with each other or contradicting each other. And so Jay made the observation that, that what we offer, what makes us unique in the dog world, the little niche that we seem to fill that no one else seems to, at least nobody on the, I don't mean the dog trainers, I mean nobody that's podcasting or mm -hmm. doing workshops or seminars, like nobody who's in that position, is that we're focusing on, like you said, that livable dog, that we use obedience, but we don't, we don't overuse it. We, we use liberty, but we don't overuse it. Like the whole idea is that we try and solve the problem that people come to us with, which is my dog is an asshole. And, and that's really everything is everything we do is in service to that idea. Mm. Like if I'm doing precision, if I do teach a dog client precision healings, cause I want to make them better team member, not because their dog needs to heal. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is sort of what we sort of come up with as, as the subset of the, workshop or the subtitle is you know creating the livable dog and so we're going to go over all of the stuff that we do we're going to start we're going to talk about arousal blue ribbon emotions uh seeking rage fear panic accessing the seeking system to turn down fear rage and panic play using play to create biological fulfillment all of the stuff that we're both known for but obviously getting into the, the over arousal issues what causes over arousal what do we do to solve it that's going to include leash, some leash handling. It's going to include some some gameplay, you know, food games, uh, shaped relaxation, which is where I'm really, I'm really pushing towards. Like I learned condition relaxation from Casey Cover, and I found that that's just a hard thing for a lot of people to get. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you get dogs that won't let you touch them. How are you? You know? Yeah. How are you? You know, and that that system that Casey teaches depends a lot of, depends a lot on massage. So what do you do? You muzzle the dog. Well, that's working against your purposes because it's creating <laughs> <Yeah>. right. 
you know? I'm picturing that. So take this massage. You will enjoy it. With a bowl gag in your mouth. (laughs) Exactly. So I started experimenting with shaping relaxation, and I found that to be very, very effective. And owners can get it faster than you think they will. Yeah, right. So we'll be going over some of that. And that leads into the massage type version. Of course, Jay has his rub down version after play, which also works really well. So we're going to go into several different or a couple different approaches to getting teaching dog to relax on cue. Obviously, we're going to do we're going to talk about the leash work, the pressure release, the original version and the 2.0 version. And, you know, because they're the same. It's, a, it's, it's not a new system. It's just a, a greater understanding of a system. We're going to talk about one of my favorite exercises I call the leaky toddler which is a great method for getting a dog. The leaky toddler. Uh, yeah, I remember hearing you talking about that at the IACP conference. Yeah, the basic idea mm. of that is that when, when people start trying to use food to get a dog, and I'll go into a lot more detail about this at the, at the workshop for sure. I know we don't have time. I mean, I could spend all day talking about just this exercise. But the basic idea is that everything people do, everything people do to try and get a dog to like them, pushes the dog further away. Mm-hmm. Like, like, hey, trust me. I always say you. we end up looking like the creepy guy at the bar. Hey, mm-hmm. come on. I'm a nice guy. Why won't you talk to me? Right? And it makes the dog really uncomfortable. And one of the things we've tried to do is bribe the dog with food. We start trying to hold out food for the dog. And, and there's a lot of protocols that people use, you know, to throw the food further away and get the dog moving away from them. But the problem that all those have is it's very clear to the dog that we're trying to get something from them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've always and, and the, the leaky toddler comes from this idea that uh, no matter how much a kid and a dog hate each other, when when you have a toddler that's in a high chair, if you have a dog in the house, that kid is not eating alone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And for that time period, that kid is that dog's best friend. Why? Because he just leaks food and there's no quid pro quo. Yeah. There's, there's no, no expectations. Yeah. And at some point in time, anytime we say, if you do this, I'll give you food. At some point in time, that smells like prostitution to a dog. Mm -hmm. And they go, whoa, I don't think, you know, I thought you were just giving me food. Now you're asking me something for it. And now I suddenly feel uncomfortable with it. So we try to do this. We we set up this leaky toddler situation where we're just randomly dropping food and we're not looking at the dog. We're not asking him for anything. We're not connecting with him. And he's trying to figure out what makes the food show up. Mm-hmm. And that reduces that fear, rage, and panic paradigm, and he starts getting interested in us. And it's a really, really, really cool thing. It's it's that so sounds easy cool. to do. Sounds mm-hmm. awesome. It kind of ties back into that movie Buck again. I think it's in that where he says, I don't try to be friends with the horse. I just make myself a gate that horse has to go through, right? I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that's in yeah, Buck. I'm yeah, almost certain he did say that. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing, right? Like the harder you try, the, the more you push them away. You just make, it, make yourself something that they need to go through and then by virtue of that, they become your friend. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a really great little – so we're going we're gonna to go over that. and we're gonna, Jay's going to do his flexibility protocol, which is really cool stuff. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff, but it's really going to be focused on trying to make this dog something that people can it's, – it's, I want to empower dog owners who come because that's one of the things. The nice things about both mine and Jay's workshop is we usually have about a fifty-fifty mixture of dog trainers and dog owners, mm-hmm. and and so we don't get so technical that a dog owner can't follow it. But we also we have enough information that that, that it can keep the interest of experienced dog trainers, veterans, but not so heavy-handed in theory that somebody who's got you know just trying to solve their dog, keep their dog from biting their kid is going to get overwhelmed with it. So it's a nice mixture. And that's really something that both of us are kind of proud of is that we can. Yeah, absolutely. I know what you mean. That's excellent in that 
with that livable dog, it's dog trainer bread and butter stuff, but at a level where people can just apply it to their own dog. They don't have to then, you know, have been doing it for 10 years to understand what you're saying. I get it for sure. It was interesting at, after I came back from IACP because Pat and I caught up and he said, how did you find it? And I said, look, it was, it was actually really good. I said, the networking was great. Some of the presenters did a great job. And at that stage, Pat had obviously been in contact with you about coming over at some stage. And he said, how did you find Chad's presentation? Well, look, to be honest, I think the first 20 minutes, it was sort of you feeling the crowd and getting over your stage nerves a little bit. But after that, when you sort of lost that and you got into your rhythm, I was really intrigued about how much you actually think about training, like how much time you put into not only the technical aspect, but improving your own practical side of it as well. So I thought that I thought that came across really well. well. I'm glad to hear that. Which day did you come, just out of curiosity? Was it the first or second day? The first day. First day. I didn't know I came off that nervous. <laughs> you, you, you actually said that you were nervous. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but you said, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous. But the first, uh, the first 20 minutes, I thought, oh, yeah, this is another discussion on dogs until you started mm-hmm. focusing on your craft. And then it became really interesting what you were discussing and your theory on the leaky toddler and so forth. I thought, wow, this is actually much better than I anticipated it would be. Not that I didn't have low hopes or anything like that. I didn't know what to expect, but it was, I've been to a lot of seminars. I've been to a lot of presentations and I actually gained some good material out of it. I thought, oh, it's, you're a good thinking man's trainer. I think you're a very deep thinker about everything yes, that you do, right, Chad? You're very deep. You don't act on a whim in dog training, particularly or, or at all, that I am aware of. You, And if you're saying something, I feel like can be sure that you've thought that through. And if you're saying this is how I feel about something, you've you've played that out in every way it can go, right? I try to live by that standard. It's There was an influential story. C.S. Lewis wrote a, an autobiography. And he tells this story about he's being shipped away to go to you know a private tutor in some other city. I can't remember the name of the city, but we'll say it's, you know, Smithville for the sake of discussion. Mm-hmm. So his parents put him on a train to go meet his teacher in Smithville. You know, he's probably like nine or ten years old at this time. And so he gets off the train and his tutor meets him at the train station. They're walking back to the tutor's house. And Lewis makes the comment. He goes, oh, so this is Smithville. It's not at all what I expected. And the teacher says, stop. And they stop right there in the streets. And as Lewis put it, he quickly explained to me why I had no business having any thoughts about what Smithville was going to be like until I'd been there. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a really like, that was an eye opening moment. Cause I, I talk, you know, I don't talk about the, I, I talk about discipline thought. Right. And, and I think that we do have an obligation to think in a disciplined way. And to, to do that, you have to know what assumptions you're working under and remove them before you start making, you know, if you know something, then you know it. But if you're just assuming it, you got to know that it's an assumption and you got to deal with that before you can really have a disciplined thought. And so in this story, Lewis had assumed he understood what Smithville was going to be like, but he had no inform- absolutely no information to have any opinions about him. He had no business. That's what he said. He had no business having any opinions about Smithville until he'd been there. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a really important thing. So that that hit me really strongly. So, yeah, I, I try to if I'm going to make an argument for something. I hate to be proven wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so before I take a stand, I want to make sure I've thought about as many angles as I can. And I don't mean that. I actually love to be proven wrong because that means I'm getting closer to the truth. Yeah, of course. But, yeah, yeah. When there's a real hole in your argument, of course you want to have it found. Right, exactly. And so before I say something publicly, I'll have the arguments. Like, like I have them in private conversations. 
Like I'll be like, what do you think about this? And somebody will say, well, I don't agree because of this, this, and this. Or I'll read the arguments. So sometimes, you, you know, I belong to a lot of Facebook groups, and I don't post on most of them. I read. Mm-hmm. And, and I see what people are saying, and I, and I digest things from both sides, from both positions. And then when I get to the end of it, I go, oh, okay, I think I know what this is. And and then I, I'll talk to Jay or Tekla Walton or uh, Tyler Muto or Mark Goldberg or somebody else who I think – knows what's what's up and get their opinion especially if they disagree with me Mm -hmm. and eventually i come to before i start making a public argument i've thought things through usually pretty pretty detailed and which that's one of the criticisms i get though people will say oh well you have an answer for everything and i'm like yeah you should before you (laughs) before you start spouting your opinion if you don't have an answer for everything you haven't thought it through very well yeah yeah you know in the army, so, we used to say that we're sick of people that say things are fucked because it's fucked. You go, well, mate, if it's fucked, what's the reasons? We've got to have an, a, a way to get through this. You can't just throw your hands up in the air and say, ah, oh, this is fucked. It, it's gotta, <laughs> there's got to be more to it than that. And I think that's the same thing. If you've got an answer for everything, it's because, yeah, I sat down, I thought about it, and I gave you the answer. I it's didn't fucked just go, because. Yeah, I didn't just go, no, oh, fuck this, and run away. <laughs> right. One of the other things I really enjoyed about while I was over there in, in uh, the States Chad, was that I find, and this might not be always the case, as it often always isn't, but I found that people in the American training fraternity seem to have a better kinship with each other than what we do here in Australia. Like, don't get me wrong, we've got a good network of people here, and there's some wonderful people that I enjoy their time thoroughly, and I learn from them, they learn from me, and we help each other out. But we seem to still be stuck in a bit of a tall poppy syndrome sometimes where we hate somebody because they seem to be successful. And then there's always the other case where you're just dealing with somebody who's out of the league and full of bravado and ego and they're more of a problem to the industry than they are a solution. I would say that I think, I would think that you probably, I think we were on our best behavior because I think we have those problems here for sure. Mm. I mean, I don't know how bad it is there, but I could say the same thing I feel about the Australian trainers I've met is that the, the sense of fraternity over there seems to be a lot. Like it seems inspiring to me. So it's getting maybe it's much like better. Grass is always greener. You know, Cap Haggerty used to uh, used to say, "If you want to be popular, be a dog trainer. If you want to <laughs> be hated, be a successful dog trainer." Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and I think that's a that's a true statement wherever you go. Like, you know the. Uh, not to like, what was me play the victim card or whatever. Cause I live a wonderful life. I'm very blessed in, in everything I've done and so much, you know, I have so many good things in my life. I can't complain, but I got to tell you, man, there was a time when a lot of people thought I was awesome. Like a lot of people just, they, they, I, everywhere I went, every time you put up a post, I save it and I keep it and I reread it and I reread it and I reread it way back in the IACP email list days. Right now, a lot of those people who were support me when I was up and coming as this new kid with a lot of great ideas or a lot of interesting ideas or an interest, interesting perspective, however you want to put it, a lot of those people have nothing to do with me anymore. Mm-hmm. At some point in time, they decided that they didn't like me, and it had nothing to do with me changing. It had to do with me getting more attention than them. Yeah, and and it's it really is a sad thing. Like it, it's depressing as hell to be honest with you, because all these people I consider to be mentors and friends. And one day they just stop responding to me or they stop liking my posts or stop like or I find out that they're talking trash behind my back. It's it's depressing as hell. But that's the human nature. I mean, we we all we all want to succeed and we all find it threatening to some degree when someone else succeeds ahead of us. Mm. 
and and I don't think there's anything to be done about it. I I lost. I stopped getting upset about it and just went, oh, there's another one. Yeah. You know. And and by the way, that's this issue. You know, with Jay, that's an issue that that Jay deals with from everywhere he goes. And I'm not gonna lie, I had I had my moments because when we started that podcast, it was supposed to be my podcast, and Jay was the you know, the, the, the interviewer, so to speak, right. Mm -hmm. That was the idea. Jay wanted to get my ideas out. And so that's how it started. And we, we did the first podcast. I got people sending me messages going, you know, who's this Jay guy? Why are you letting him talk, talk so much? And I was like supporting him. Like, no, you listen to him. He's got a lot to say. But then the first time I heard someone say Jay's podcast, I went, wait a minute. <laughs> I go, hey, that's my podcast. Or they went Jay and Chad. I'm like, no, my name's supposed to be first. You don't understand how this works. <laughs> and it got it, and I had to check that. Like I literally had to go, wait a minute. I'm doing Jay's it. on yeah. my side. Yeah. And I don't care if they are tuning in for him or for me. They're getting the good information. So I, I, I let that go and now I can't be happier for him. But even in that situation, I had to deal with it. So I can't be mad when somebody else has that issue, mm-hmm. you know. But, you know, the truth is, Jay told me that, that pretty much every, everywhere he goes, he ends up getting, you know, losing friends because he gains a certain degree of attention and people don't like it. And he's just such a bigger-than-life personality, he's going to always get attention, Yeah, you know. Sometimes and it's like a childhood act, people who are involved in being successful in acting – and they've had a degree of success and acknowledgement for a period of life, and then for some reason they've aged badly or their acting fell behind, and they're desperately scrambling to try and still reach that recognition at some times. And I see sometimes that happens in the dog training industry is that people have fallen behind yet still believe they're owed that that level of respect or reverence from people, and yet they haven't done anything to earn it. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the other thing, too, is at least in the States, I don't know how bad it is there in Australia, but in the States, we are obsessed with fame as a culture. Like, we have the Kardashians now, and not to not to trash them or anything like that, but, you know, literally, this is a, this is a family that's famous for being famous. Mm. Like, they, and they've, I mean, they've done some charity stuff, and I'm not, again, I'm not trashing them. I got no problem with them. Like, they, they took advantage of an opportunity that was given to them, but you wouldn't have had that happen 20 years ago. You no, wouldn't have been able to right? yeah. parlay defending O.J. Simpson, your dad defending O.J. Simpson into an empire would not have happened. Mm. And 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 that's that's what that's that's we're that society now, you know, famous for we we're obsessed over fame. Mm. And thankfully, I don't think I have a lot of that. I have some of it. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, in my best moments, in my best moments, my ideal legacy would be this. In 20 years or 30 years, I walk into a dog training facility somewhere on the planet, and there's some kid has no idea who I am, has never heard my name before, but he's doing stuff that I helped be, helped make a thing. And I go, where did that come from? And he goes, I don't know. It's just what we do. Yeah. yeah. That, it's a, it's a that, good legacy. That, it's a good legacy to have. Yeah. I mean, that to me, that's success. Like, to a certain extent, Bill Keeler has that. Like you'll see people doing Keeler-esque training and they'll have no idea that they're doing Keeler training. Yeah, totally. You know? And there's been that much leak out through it. Yeah, for sure. And and that's really, that's really to me, that would be the ideal legacy. Like like if there was – this is a question I ask young trainers sometimes is if, if you know, impossible scenario. But, you know, if you press this button, every dog owner and every dog trainer in the world will immediately know everything you think is essential for them to know. But – None of them will ever remember you. Do you press the button? 
<laughs> you'd good, like to think a, you'd say yes, good right? Good question, yeah. I, I think I would, but it'd be hard. I'm not going to lie. It'd be hard. Yeah. Because we do want to be recognized for our accomplishments. We do want to know. We want, do want, want people to say, good job there. You did that, right? Of course we do. Who doesn't? Hmm. But, but when we let that get in the way, like, for example, I could have gotten upset about Jay getting too much fame and tried to change the podcast or tried to rein him in or got a different co-host or some other thing. And what would have happened was I would have hurt my mission, mm. which is to get information out there to people. And he is exceptional at getting information out to people. So from a practical point of view, that sort of arrogance, that sort of egotism only hurts us. Like you got to support people who are telling good, who are saying good things, even if you don't like, and I love Jay, like he's like my best friend, but you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like even if you don't like somebody, if they're saying good things, you got to support them. Yeah. That's it's right. not about who I like. It's about like this. It's a, it's a, there's a competition of ideas out there and it's scary. Some of the stuff that's going around is scary on from the balance side and from the positive side. Like I don't give balance trainers a pass. There are a lot of, there's a lot of dickheads out there. Mm-hmm. There doing is terrible, doing terrible things to dogs and calling it good training. And rather than spend my time criticizing them, I just put out a different message. Let's, you know, and, but that message has to get out there and anybody who can help me do that, I got to support that person. Yeah. I think, that, I, th- I think it's a fair thing not to, not to personally have a, a likable relationships with somebody. But as you said before, I think you have to acknowledge when they're doing or saying good things and you have to support that if it's in the best interest of the industry, so to speak, or any industry for that matter. I think it's important, like it's difficult to explain, but I think everybody has a level of, of hubris to themselves and they don't want to see other people doing better than them in anything. But, and I think you got to, swallow that down a little bit and accept as if they're doing better than you, so long as it's not because they're pushing you down, if they're just really going forward, that's a really good thing for everyone. For them, obviously, and for you as well, because now that's competition and that's more striving forward for you. And if they're figuring out cooler things or just doing whatever better, as long as they're not doing it, as long as they're not ahead of you because they're cutting you down, mm. then then it's excellent that they are ahead of you. Yeah, it's you, okay to be hungry and successful, yeah. just not a fucktard. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what we're going to get put on the next shirt. It's okay to be hungry and successful, just not a fucktard. <laughs> yeah, we should put that on our uh, Canine Paradigm shirt. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, there's, like Mark Goldberg pointed out a long time ago, there's, there's more than enough dogs to go around. Like, if everybody who needed a dog trainer in the world hired somebody, we still couldn't keep up with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's I right. totally support that. Part of my professional job is that we run boarding kennels and for all the boarding kennel owners out there we could build a skyscraper on top of our property and for all the population of dogs and cats out there if you if you ran at capacity you'd still need like a city to be able to house all the dogs and cats so there's no point Mm -hmm. in running each other down which essentially is a great thing we've actually got a great fraternity happening in an organization that we've got here that many people are behind and they're supporting each other because they see it as we're all in this together. And I think that's an important message that people are now seeing is that it's us against them really, you know, against the the other organisations who don't want to be successful. So why tear each other down? Why ruin opportunity and business practices that can be improved with each other's knowledge and mentorship? Yeah, no, I think that's it's so important to me, like like networking and mm. being able to share 
and learn from each other. Like that's that's the great thing about the world we live in now. Right? People coming up today have no idea how much better it is than when I was, you know, struggling to find information. Uh, you know, you can you you don't have to get out of your underwear to find countless hours of quality content mm. about how to do your job better at yeah. the YouTube like, University. In, yeah, yeah. Well, not just that, but the blogs and websites and articles and eBooks, and it's just so easy to get information. You can go onto a Facebook group. The right Facebook group is going to be more valuable than any workshop or DVD mm. if it's the right group and you've got the right conversations going on. Like, like there's. There's so much information available and so many people you can learn from, and it's it's just incredible. Of course, then there's groups that are complete shit shows too. Yeah. But just having that ability to dig through the mud to find those diamonds much quicker than than I could have back in back when I was going to the libraries to do it. You know, it's just such a such a different world. Like, like there's of course there's more garbage too. That's the problem with the internet, right? Is there's nobody censoring it, and I'm not saying there should be. I'm totally opposed to that, but. At least with a publisher, there's somebody vetting for facts. You know, what I'm yeah. <laughs> I think people are getting pretty good these days at filtering internet bullshit as well. Like in general, because there is so much of it out there, people are getting much better at going, "Hmm, this seems like you're full of shit." And it's so easy to find, you know, that the opposing point of view that maybe is more correct. That- this is an old Wikipedia post. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. None of it's based on fact, but it sounds interesting. Yeah. You're obviously not following American politics these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit of that. We get a, we get certainly enough leak over of that to hear. In fact, I was in America for the the election, ah. the last one, which was somewhat yeah. exciting. That was amazing. That was I mean, and I don't mean I don't mean I mean amazing from a spectator point of view. Mm. I'm not going to discuss my political views. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, and as we've now reached the talking about p- politics, it's probably time to thank you for coming yeah. on. <laughs> it's it's kind of weird, you know, talking about that because in Australia, I think there's probably more people that know more about America than they do their own country because we're raised on an American ideology. American well, TV know, programs. I mean, a lot of our a lot of our early education came through the American concept. Yeah, I had a shadow student who was where was she from? Slovenia, I think. And we this was during the presidential campaign, and she was talking very knowledgeable about the candidates and this sort of stuff. And it hit me like, I don't know, who, I don't know who the <laughs> prime minister of Australia is. I don't know if you guys have a prime minister or a president president or what. Like, I have no idea. I'll introduce you when you're here. Oh, okay. I don't. <laughs> he trains you know, his dog have, with us. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know any of this stuff, but everybody in the world knows who the president of the United States is. And the reason for that is that our foreign policy affects everybody in the world. Yeah, that's right. That's like, exactly it. Like, it, it somebody, somebody wrote that it's that it, the president of the United States is too powerful to, to leave his election to the American people. And I, and I see the logic there. Like, I would be. I would not want to be in a position where I had no say in what happened in this country's politics because it does affect everybody. Like, yeah. It's just – so it's crazy. But yeah, watching that election unfold was was ridiculous here. Yeah. Like, just all the polls had it wrong. All the polls had it wrong. Mm. It was it was certainly – from my point of view, I was channel surfing and just watching all the different um, – It was like watching OJ all over again. Well, just the coverage of the same thing being told differently. Yeah. Uh, was, <laughs> yes. Was, was very interesting to me because we don't have as as polarized the media here. Um, ah, so yeah. it was I was I was quite hysterical watching like from one channel to the other. Yeah, we don't have so much fake news, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. Um, well, I mean, 
people lost their minds. Yeah. People lost their minds. Like everyone thought they knew how it was going to turn out. You know what I mean? And uh, like there's a famous picture from our history, you know, that I remember from my sixth grade history book of Harry Truman holding up a front page headline that says Dewey defeats Truman. Of course, Truman won that election, but the newspaper had already been printed. Mm. So, so he's holding it up as his victory thing. And this election was another one of those things. Like, you know, everybody had it wrong. Yeah. But, uh, oh, well. it, 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 the point I'm getting at is not to discuss our politics, but just that, that, Everybody on both sides believes that they are absolutely 100% factually correct in everything they say, and neither side is 100% factually correct. Yeah. Yep. You know. Exactly. And so. All right. Well, Chad, thank you very much for coming on. Again, Chad and Jay are going to be here in May, first three weekends in May, doing the Dog Training Conversations Tour of Australia. We're starting in Sydney the first weekend, then to Brisbane, then to Melbourne. There's still tickets available in that. Sydney's getting close to full. Melbourne's getting close to full. And Brisbane, there's still some spots. And there's dog spots available in Brisbane for sure. And the others we can see. So fill out the form, buy tickets online. The tickets are available at mskennels.com. Hit the services, then seminars tab. You can see it there. There's a Facebook group, Dog Training Conversations Australian Tour. And if you're not in that, jump in that. And then that's got all the links you could need to do it. And you've just heard it from the man himself in that it's focused around the livable dog. And Chad, you'd say it's for... It's bread and butter dog trainer stuff, like pet dog trainer stuff. So, and it's 100% applicable to dog owners and people just dog training enthusiasts, not just professionals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. But if you're, if you're a serious dog trainer, you're still going to find some stuff of value. At least that's our plan. Yeah, Terrific. totally. And if um, people want to get in contact with you, Chad, how can they do it? Well, they can follow me at packtobasics.net or packtobasics on Facebook. Uh, if you guys don't mind, I plug our podcast, Dog Training Conversations, which you can follow that on Dog Training Conversations on Facebook. And that's it, I guess. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, get online, like, share, subscribe, all of that stuff. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that via Facebook. We're on there, the Canine Paradigm. We've got Instagram and Twitter. And when I remember, I use those. So you can check those out as well. <laughs> that's it again. Chad, thanks again. Thanks, and, Chad. Um, Great episode. Thanks for having mate. me, guys. Enjoyed it. Glenn, cue the music. Uh-oh.